This message was presented at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right, everyone, we're going to have to start because we don't want to uh, use up the time that we have. Let me just say that uh, from the last presentation, we have several resources available at our booth. If you're interested in more information, uh, books and, and so forth, not all of them are there, but these are the top ones are some of the scientific books that we have published through the Institute of Archaeology in the last uh, several years. And the bottom two are popular books. Um, this one just came out in 2018 in the footsteps of King David. I only have about 20 copies that I brought with me. I think I sold three yesterday. So anyway, um, it's by a very prestigious publisher in England. And uh, this is a book on Solomon's Temple and Palace. And then we also have some DVDs available, also on Archaeology in the Bible that we produced with It Is Written. And you can go probably to their booth or our booth to, to, to get these. But I uh, just want to make you, let you know that there's resources out there available. This gentleman has something to say. And his name is Christian, so I'm going to give him the mic. Greetings again. Um, we have a lot of people. So we really want to ask if everyone can really squeeze together. We want to have as many seats filled as possible. We don't want this room. It can't go over a certain capacity of people. So we really need people to squish in and allow those who are standing or trying to come into the seminar to sit so that we can know whether the room is full or not. Sadly, you can't save seats. So if you're saving a seat for someone, you're just going to have to move. If the person makes it or not, we're sorry but we really have a, a maximum capacity that we can't exceed for this. So just please, if you guys can squish together and as many people find seats as possible. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Christian. Appreciate that. So we want to stick with the fire code here and work well with everyone. Um, anyway, as I said, these books will be uh, at, at the booth um, later this afternoon. And the most recent one that just came out three days ago, which is on the topic that we are studying just came out with Pacific Press on how to interpret scripture will also be available there. Uh, I want to switch presentations here. Takes a while. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for Jesus who said, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. We thank you for Jesus' statement who said, scripture cannot be broken. That is a direct answer to some of the critics who want to dissect and piece together the Bible to make it say what they want to say. Guide us, Lord. We want to be men and women of the truth. We want to believe in an age where truth is relative, that there is truth. Thank you for Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you for the freedom, the true freedom that we can have in Christ. And that the freedom that this world promises in giving up any absolutes, really is no freedom at all. Thank you for 
your commandments that protect us. Bless our fourth presentation later this afternoon where we will deal specifically with one of those commandments, two of those commandments, the Sabbath and uh, honoring the father and the mother. Bless each person here today. We're all struggling. We're all on this journey together. We don't all have it figured out, but we need to rely on you, the author and finisher of our faith. In your name we pray, amen. We've been going through the series Understanding the Bible, Critical Issues Today. It's a, a nice way of using a very technical term, hermeneutics, the field of study, which is concerned with how we interpret the Bible or other literary texts. I'm excited that we're going to be studying this as a Sabbath school quarterly this year. Um, the outline of our presentations, we're on our third presentation of four. This third presentation is entitled, Does the Bible Really Reveal the Future? Prophecy in the New World Order. Not going to deal probably as much with the New World Order, but we might comment on it briefly. And our outline for today is the meaning of prophecy. We talked about history, and we need to also talk about prophecy. Because prophecy is the other side of the coin to history. Because if God intervenes in history, he also has the power to know the future and to guide us into that future that he has given us. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is found in John chapter 14, 1 through 3, where Jesus promises that he is going to a place to prepare a place for us. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I am coming again to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you, there you may be also. That's a prophecy. That's a hope. That's a purpose. Young people, probably the biggest issue that you're facing in your life right now is the question of purpose. It's the issue that I faced when I was in my 20s. It's a huge issue. The Bible provides a purpose. You can search high and low. Solomon did that. He came to the end of his life. At the very end, the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, this is the end of the matter. What is the end of the matter? Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the word of God. So we're going to look at various aspects today. We are living in a world where the individual is left wondering if there is any perfect purpose. This is my friend, Dr. Tim Matthews, again, up in Alaska. I love this picture. When I saw it, I thought it was a perfect illustration for what we're going to talk about today. Is there a road? Where does that road lead? Is there even a road? Is there even a path? Or is this something that we simply have to fall into in and of ourselves and make our own world be true to ourselves and 
be true to who we are and all these sayings that we hear today. The mantra of our age today is this one. It is the journey that matters, not the destination. It is the journey that matters, not the destination. Now that can be taken in different ways. One can interpret this statement as saying, you know, every bit of the journey matters. Can we agree with that? Certainly. Do we want to experience that journey fullest, in the most full way? Yes. So in that sense, I like the statement. I'm not sure about the last part of the statement. You see, existentialism that we discussed in our last presentation, this is Merriam-Webster dictionary definition, a chiefly 20th century philosophical movement, founded by Nietzsche, by the way, we talked about Friedrich Nietzsche, embracing diverse doctrines, notice the emphasis on diverse doctrines, diverse teachings, but centering on analysis of individual existence in an unfathomable universe and the plight of the individual who must assume ultimate responsibility for acts of free will without any certain knowledge of what is right, wrong, or good, or bad. That's postmodernism. That's the world we live in today, existentialism. Existentialism exhibits itself in many different ways. It exhibits itself in art. Jackson Pollock was an existentialist living in the 1950s really faced an existentialist crisis in the 50s. It was after World War II. We just talked about World War II. What do you do with the reality of two world wars in a short succession of time and millions and millions of deaths? Fatherless children, orphans. Destroyed cities, an entire continent that needs to be rebuilt. How can you talk about beauty after a world bent on self-destruction. This was the philosophical conundrum of the existentialists at the time. How can you talk about beauty? How can you talk about meaning? Is there any meaning? The promise of meaning on the evolutionary process and scale of progress leading to truth was devastated with World War II. The most sophisticated, sorry, I'm German, I have to say this, but it's true, the most sophisticated, most technologically advanced country in the world bent on destroying the world and in process destroying itself. A country that had been steeped in Protestantism but has lost its way. The home of Martin Luther, Melanchthon, and the princes who stood up at the Augsburg Confession. 
Jackson Pollock is an artist who decided he was going to exhibit this existentialist crisis by no longer drawing beautiful flowers or exquisitely painted landscapes, but simply throwing paint on a canvas and calling it art. My wife is an art historian. I have been forced to go through <laughs> hundreds of museums and galleries in my lifetime all around the world. It's a wonderful experience, but sometimes I go to a modern museum of art and I wonder if I, as I stare at a blank white canvas with a single red line running through it, what is the meaning of all this? <laughs> but that is precisely the meaning of it. This is precisely the meaning of it. Pollock died a miserable early death. His paintings hang in the most prestigious galleries and art museums in the world today. Paint splashed on canvas. Nietzsche thought that art was the ultimate reason for living, that art was going to enhance life. Art and, of course, music, which is part of art as well. Art came to substitute religion in Nietzsche's mind. And today, that is true, because as I visit the museums of the world, the great museums of the world today, I find that the churches are empty and the museums are packed with people, searching for meaning in an existentialist world. Art is simply a reflection of the philosophical crises that we face in our world. And they're a powerful illustration of history and even the history and interpretation of the Bible. We don't have time to go into that today. Part of the postmodern ethos is that truth is relative, that there is no moral absolute that you're free to do as you will, and ultimate freedom is the goal for life. But the reality is that this is a very nice philosophical idea. I say nice in quotes. But it really doesn't work in real life. It really doesn't explain our existence in real life. Now, when I share this to students, even at Southern Adventist University, they're gaping at me in astonishment that I'm even questioning the idea that truth is relative. Because this is the culture and the society and the world that we have been steeped in, that I was steeped in as a college student many years ago, that has been inculcated in our minds and in our educational systems for, for years. They, they have been fed this through the media. And they're like, what? What do you mean? Isn't pluralism, the idea of multiple competing truths, okay? I mean, isn't that what life is really today? Well, we're not very pluralistic when we get on an airplane or relativistic when we get on an airplane. I have the um, misfortune of flying a lot. Some of you like to fly, that's fine. When you do it as much as I do, it's not that much fun anymore. I think this year I was on 100, close to 100 different planes. Flew over 200,000 miles. 
And yeah, you get status and all these things, but in the end, you're just in a big, long tube flying through the air somewhere. <laughs> so when we get on a plane, when I get on a plane, I sure hope the pilot is not a relativist. I sure hope that he's not telling me or getting on the... Gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, greetings from the cockpit. This is a journey today. It's the journey that matters, not the destination. <laughs> My father told the story years ago. He was in Frankfurt, Germany. Some of you have flown through Frankfurt know that's a very large airport. He was late for his flight connection to Chicago, and he arrived at the gate just as the gate had closed and he was no, nowhere close to getting onto that plane. And the lady said, there's another plane leaving from Chicago. You gotta run, run for all you're worth. It's at the other end of the airport. If you know Frankfurt, you gotta run. So he ran, he ran, he ran. He gets to the gate, gets on the plane. The pilot comes on. We are heading to Mumbai, India today. <laughs> I can tell you that my father was not a relativist and was not like, you know what, it's not about it's just about the journey, not the destination. <laughs> he wanted to get home to Chicago, to Berrien Springs, where we lived, and see his family again. That's where home was. Planes operate on certain physics. One of my best friends I grew up with is a senior pilot for Walmart Corporation. Flies business jets and famous people all around the world. When you're in a plane with him, he's in a different mode. My stepfather is a pilot. When I fly with my stepdad, it's all business. I'm sitting in the, yeah, the co-pilot position, whatever. <laughs> know nothing about what I'm doing. He's in the pilot position. He owns a twin-engine aircraft. And um, let me tell you, it's no, it's no nonsense because everything matters. It's a life and death situation. I remember flying up to Mackinac Island with him. It was a wonderful experience. They live in Michigan. And um, <clears throat> as on the way back, there were huge storm clouds coming over Lake Michigan from Chicago. And we had to make a detour and, and go around the storm clouds. And it was oh, the coolest experience, because you, you saw these lightnings flashing through the storm clouds. And you were very thankful that you were outside that system. But, uh, you know, everything matters at that point. When you're going in for brain surgery, you better hope that your surgeon is not a relativist. My daughter, Daniela, just tore her ACL in August a second time. Just had surgery two weeks ago today. She would be here at GYC, but she didn't want to be in a wheelchair. So she's at home. And she's got a brace on still. And Dr. Dorsis, our surgeon, wonderful Christian orthopedic surgeon, a godly man. I was almost crying when he knelt down next to my 21-year-old daughter before she went into the OR in my presence and prayed with her the most beautiful, profound prayer that you can imagine, asking for the God of creation to guide his hands as he was performing that surgery. I'm so glad he wasn't a relativist. You know what? Her knee still has the Sharpie 
initials of the surgeon on the knee that was supposed to be operated on. She had her ACL replaced, her meniscus was badly damaged, lost 35% of that, her ALL had to be re re reattached. It was a major surgery. Um, I'm so glad he didn't say, you know what, nurses, when do I get in here? We'll just see what we operate on today. Maybe it'll be the right knee instead of the left knee. By the way, they asked her like three times before she went in, which, which knee did you injure again? They want to be sure, right? We don't live in a relativistic world in real life. We come to a stoplight, and it's not relativistic there. Everyday life doesn't operate that way. Yeah, we may try to pass cars, but when we're in our lane, it's a good thing to be in our lane, right? Life has purpose. Relativism does not offer purpose. It doesn't offer certainty. The Bible tells us in Psalm 139, 13 through 14, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. I loved the fact that when my surgeon was describing to my daughter what was going on with her knee, he says, this is the way God created the knee. Wow. It's incredible. It's why they call medical work the right hand of the gospel. Education 125-126 says, the central theme of the Bible, the theme about which every other theme in the book clusters, you should be paying attention after a sentence like that, right? Is the redemption plan. The restoration in the human soul of the image of God. I'm a good friend here. Where are you, Dan? Dan and I graduated from Andrews Academy together. And uh, Dan, you remember what is emblazoned on the wall right outside the chapel? A quote very similar to that one. Four years, that was ingrained in our minds as we walked into chapel for worship at Andrews Academy in Berrien Springs, Michigan. Being restored in the image of God is the purpose of true education. But in order to be restored, we have to understand that restoration needs to take place. We need to understand the whole grand scheme of the history of what has taken place before we understand prophecy. He who grasped this thought, let's not finish, he who grasped this thought has before him or her an infinite field for study. He has the key to unlock for him the whole treasure house of God's word. The science of redemption is the science of all sciences. This is the highest study in which it is possible for men to engage. As no other study can, it will quicken the mind and uplift the soul. Young people, you want to be good at school? Start studying the Bible. Start memorizing the Bible. Your mind will be cleared of all the other clutter, and you will be able to focus and become better for having done so. We stand 
at a crossroads in this image. But the reality is that God has a path before us. He has a clear, marked-out road before us. We don't always see that road from our perspective. There's a mountain you see in the distance, and you cannot see beyond that mountain. But he can see it from his perspective. Have you ever thought about that? I was talking with a friend in this seminar at the very beginning of today, and we shared our mutual experience together. He lost his dad about 10 years ago. I lost my dad longer than that ago. I was 25 years old, I think, when my father was killed in a car accident. And I remember flying back from the University of Arizona where I was in graduate school at the time, and I was to speak at the seminary at Andrews University for the memorial service, sharing some personal insights from our family about my father, who had been dean of the seminary for many years there and been a professor there for much of his life. And I remember thinking as I was sitting there in first class using one of his upgrade certificates on United, what, what I would share, what I would say. I mean, kind of as a moment where you don't know what to share. And I remember looking out of the window, and I don't know what state we were flying over. It might have been Nebraska or something. Sorry if you're from Nebraska, but it's a fairly flat state. But I saw from 30,000 feet, I saw a road that just stretched out into the horizon forever, it seems, until it disappeared. It was one of these clear of clear days, and you could see it just going for miles and miles and miles. And I suddenly realized in that moment that I might not know all the answers, but I serve a God who does. And I can trust him because his perspective is not my perspective. I may not see over the next mountain, but he sees the end from the beginning. He is the end and the beginning. And not only does he know, but through his son, Jesus Christ, he has experienced our life on this earth to its fullest. He knows what we're going through. He has not been tempted in any way in which we are not tempted He has not gone through anything that you and I have gone through. In fact, he suffered all the sins of the entire world at the cross. That's what crushed his heart. That includes your sin and my sin today. And from God's perspective, wow, I suddenly had a much lighter feeling that day because I realized I could trust a God who has a different perspective than mine. I may not have the answers, but I can trust him until he will share them with me one day. Praise God for who he is. And he's given us those answers in his word. He's given us those answers through prophecy. Prophecy assumes three things. It assumes that God is able to communicate future events that cannot be known or predicted by human beings. That's denied by the historical critical method, yes, for sure. That assumes that he is intimately knowledgeable and involved in our world. And it assumes something that we as human beings cannot do at all, that are completely impossible to do. But he can. He knows the future. 
And I don't believe that that limits our decisions, but somehow he knows. We have freedom of choice, but somehow through his wisdom, he knows the different trajectories and he is working out his plan accordingly. Number two, that his knowledge is perfect concerning the events that will take place in the future, seeing beforehand the outcomes of decisions made. How that works, I have no idea, because I can't do it. None of us can. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen 10 days from now. We don't know what's going to happen next year. 2020, I never thought I would be in 2020. Did you? Maybe some of you younger folks did. Some of us older folks. Number three, that God ultimately has a plan and purpose in mind. That is the truth of prophecy, that God has a plan and purpose in mind for his people. Amen? Amen. He has a plan for us. He has a plan for you individually. Yes, he honors your choices, but pray that your choices may conform to the perfect plan that he has for your life. Let me tell you something. There's no plan that you can come up with that is not greater than the plan that God has for you. He will surprise you. He will blow your mind away with what he has in store for you. If you had asked me 30 years ago, that I would be, if you had told me 30 years ago that I would be doing what I'm doing now, I would have been like, really? It's hilarious. Directing three projects in Israel? You know how difficult that is? Americans working in Israel? There's only five digs run by Americans in Israel. In the last 10 years, 15 years? The bureaucracy? Of course, I didn't know any of that back then. God is amazing. He'll, he'll surprise you. He will, he will do something out of the ordinary. The origin of prophecy, Amos 3, 7, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Who are the prophets? In our first presentation, we talked about inspiration and revelation, and we uh, referred to the word of God that is repeated, the word of the Lord that is repeated over 300 times in the Old Testament, and how those are given to his prophets. Moses was his prophet. The writers of scripture were prophets. Deborah was a prophet. We have all kinds of people in the Bible who are prophets. People who didn't write books of scripture that are prophets. Knowing this first, this is 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of, is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man. This is extremely important. This is a, a crucial text. We should have reflected on it before now, but we haven't until now. When am I supposed to be done? Huh? 12.45? I only had 45 minutes for this session? Oh, one. Okay. Uh, my daughter just saw me a minute ago, and she says, Dad, don't go overtime this time. All right, I got to go. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This Bible is unique because holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It's not 
inspired like Shakespeare was inspired, if he was inspired. It's not, it's not like any other book in history. It's the living word of God. We do not see the future. We do not see the storms ahead. Another picture of my friend Tim Matthews. We do not see the storms ahead, but God knows the future. And in his plan, this huge plan that he has set up, the Bible is made of a plan. It starts with a perfect world at creation. Then we have the fall, plunging this world into what we have experienced today. Then we have the promise of redemption through Jesus Christ and the promise of a new earth and restoration. Isn't that beautiful? That plan is what we have in Scripture. You cannot remove creation because then you don't have the fall and then you don't have redemption and then you don't have restoration. You see what I'm saying? You cannot remove parts of Scripture because the whole thing is a package and is the plan of what that we're going to be studying through eternity? The plan and the greatest science of all, the plan of redemption. We're not going to grasp all of that. According to the biblical worldview, Creation was perfect. We were created in the image of God. The fall plunged us. We are de-evolving, not evolving. Are you with me? We're living in the 20th, uh, 21st century now, in 2020. We think because we have cell phones and smart technology that we're better than all the other generations. Study history with me, please. Go to Egypt with me this summer, please. Look at the buildings that they built and tell me that if, if of any building that we build today will last 4,000 years like the pyramids did. Who are we? We have de-evolved. We have felt the full effects of sin over the centuries. And it is only through redemption that we have any hope through righteousness by faith of restoration. Amen. So that history is moving forward. It's linear history. Yes, it's moving forward, not simply because it's linear, but it's moving forward toward the fulfillment of the promises Amen. of God. Amen. It's moving forward to the fulfillment of Christ's second coming. Yes, first it was his first coming. Now it's his second coming. That's why we are Seventh-day Adventists. We believe in creation and we believe in restoration. We believe in creation. We believe in recreation. We believe in the promises of God. We accept all of Scripture from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22. It is all the Word of God. How different. We have this picture here, sorry. How different from a different plan. Evolution where things begin in a primordial soup and chaos, not in perfect order. Sorry, this was the slide I wanted to have earlier, but it moves upwards towards something in the future of which we don't know, okay? This is evolution. It's the very opposite of what we are taught in scripture, okay? We move from a lower form to a higher form. No, the Bible teaches us we were created perfect and we have been suffering the effects of sin ever since. All right. Progress, survival by the fittest. I think that has been done away with with our last presentation. So God is a God who works in history. God is a God who 
miraculously intersected history, and it doesn't matter if you're politically correct or not, we still divide history today by that one event, the cross of Jesus Christ at Calvary. B.C., A.D. B.C.E., C.E., that's what I have to use when I'm in Israel. They don't want to refer to Christ. This is what we have as Seventh-day Adventists. That is what divides history through time and God's intervention in history in the future. I'm going to skip this and move forward. Seventh-day Adventists have been given five key distinctives. I call them, we've called them the, seven, the five S's. The Sabbath, the state of the dead. That's a huge one, by the way, huge. Watch what you guys are watching. This is being challenged in everything. And if you think it's just entertainment, no. This is, these are messages that are being put there to impact your mind. The spirit of prophecy, the sanctuary, the second coming. These pillars of truth stand firm as the eternal hills, unmoved by the efforts of men, combined with those of Satan and his host. We can learn much and should be constantly searching the scriptures to see if these things are so. God's people are now to have their eyes fixed on the heavenly sanctuary, where the final administration of our great high priest in the work of the judgment is going forward, where he is interceding for his people today. A study years ago at Emory University compared images, pictures like this one that, again, my friend Tim Matthews took some time ago, beautiful sunrise or sunset, I'm not sure. But what the mind does with a photograph compared to a painting. Do you know that our minds are activated much more and stimulated much more when we look at a painting than when we look at a photograph? Why is that? By the way, the frontal cortex is part of that stimulation when we see a painting because there's creativity involved, because there is something special about a painting. It's not just somebody taking a picture. It is somebody that has spent hours, days, maybe even years creating that. So God knew what he was doing when he put into a picture through artwork the sanctuary. It was a picture and a plan, a picture in architectural form and in art form of the plan of salvation, all aspects of it. We don't have time to go into it today. I just want to point this out to you. The first people the Bible describes as being inspired are not writers of the Bible. There are two artists who are given the task of building the sanctuary. That's where the word inspired is used first in the Bible. And the spirit is given to them to create the sanctuary by God. Why? So that he might dwell among us. According to all that I show, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So they were given a picture and they were to recreate it in art 
taking away a bit of my wife's thunder here, I'm sorry. Why do you think the temple was placed in the center of the then known world? Egypt, the great empire to the south, Assyria, Babylonia, Persia, the Hittite territory up there, in this little land bridge between the desert and the Mediterranean that all people had to traverse going this direction or this direction, trade, commerce, wars, everything went through Israel. And there God placed, through divine intervention, he told Abraham to go to a place that I would show you. And by faith he went, not knowing where he was going. And by faith, the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea. And by faith, they built the temple in Jerusalem. And by faith, it was to become a picture of God's plan, not only for Israel, but the surrounding nations. Unfortunately, well, Israel resorted to a more inward focus than an outward focus and gave a lot of their special mission and mandate up. The temple was an amazing thing. And we refer to this in prophecy as typology. Typology focuses on actual persons, events, or institutions of the Old Testament that are founded in a historical reality and point forward to a greater reality in the future. The use of typology as a method of interpretation goes back to Jesus and the New Testament writers. They understood that the meaning of single events can often be fully understood only in the light of their consequences in, their, in later history, and that typology and prophecy are twin sisters, both pointing forward. What was the sanctuary? A type of that which was to come, the anti-type, Jesus Christ. The lamb was representing Christ. The Lord Jesus was the foundation of the whole Jewish economy. Its imposing services were of divine appointment. They were designed to teach the people that at the time appointed one would come to whom these ceremonies pointed. What are we doing with media today? It's the most powerful thing that we have in the world, isn't it? Everybody is drawn to it. Everybody is talking about it. This last week, it was Star Wars again. What are we doing with media today? What did God do with media back then? Young people, opportunities. You think something isn't quite right? Make it right. Make it better. Reach people where they're at instead of consuming what they want you to consume. Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons when the fullness of time had come. I was in Rome, as I said, in 2018 at the International Bible Conference, and I was able to share with our scholars there uh, this. And I remember one scholar coming to me, where did you get this information? These these eight points here of, of, of how the fullness of time had come when Jesus Christ was sent into this world and was born in Bethlehem. Where did you get this? I just smiled because I didn't want to embarrass him. Straight out of the desire of ages. It's right there. 
She writes this. Nations were united under one government. Greek was the one language that everybody spoke. The, the, the gospel message could be reached everywhere because of that language. The Roman road system that gave access to the world, I, I talked about this because we were, we were there in Rome and we were going to be on this road, walking on this road. Jews were losing their faith. Paganism was losing hold. Degraded humanity was ready for something new. Prophecy had been studied and understood by thinkers and scholars. By the way, who understood those prophecies the most? The wise men who came from Persia or Babylon, not the Jews in Jerusalem. That should be a lesson for us today. Are we studying the prophecies as we should be and living them and preaching them? They come to Jerusalem and nobody knows what's going on. Nobody's expecting the king. prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 in the fullness of time. I don't have time to go through this. You can hear it on Audioverse sometime. Well, maybe I should real quick. This is something that has been mentioned by other people before. Probability of just eight of the estimated 65 messianic prophecies. These are specific prophecies. There are over 300 prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament, but 65 are extremely specific that he would born in, be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. We talked already about Psalm 22 that declares, that describes the way Christ would be crucified, which he repeats while he was on the cross. But eight of the estimated 65 messianic prophecies to be fulfilled by Jesus or one person is one in 10 to the 17th. This is a statistician that put his class to kind of trying to figure out these things. What does that number mean? Well, this is what, how one person put it. Cover the entire state of Texas with two feet of silver or dollar coins. You send in a blind man. You, you've marked one with X. You send in a blind man into the state of Texas. And on his first try, he picks that coin with the X. That's the probability of that only eight of those prophecies being fulfilled in the life of one individual. So he didn't stop there. He went to 24 of the specific prophecies, and he had his students come up. And I've got, this is more elaborated elsewhere, but he came up with another number. Jesus, the, the prophecies to be fulfilled by one person is 1 to 10 in the 157th. That's an enormous number. I, I, I typed 157 zeros there, just so you know. Crazy, crazy number. The other number was one quadrillion. I have no number, an idea what this number is called. But just to put that into perspective, this is a uh, Hubble telescope image of galaxies. Each of those light points that you see there are not stars. They're galaxies. Each galaxy has up to a trillion stars in them. There are an estimated 100 billion galaxies in the known universe today. If you count all of those trillion stars in 100 billion galaxies, you only have the number of stars coming to 10 to 23 in the entire known universe. But this is the number that we're talking about here. If we don't take it to the, that's the macrocosm, let's take it to the microcosm. If you take atoms, this one of the smallest elements in the universe, we estimate, you know, you get this off of uh, the internet. We estimate, scientists estimate that there are in the observable universe 10 to the 78 atoms in existence, and this is the number that we're still talking about. Stoner writes that 
the certainty of Christ as the Messiah is incontrovertible and must be accepted as fact more than anything else. Today we have four different views of prophecy. Now, that's, we're talking here about apocalyptic prophecy. There's two types of prophecy. I'm going to take my full 10 minutes here. Sorry. I have to be done by one for sure. Okay. When's lunch? One. Oh, gee. Now you're going to be at the end of the line. Okay, I've got to go quickly here. Sorry. Um, we are historicists. We believe in the historicist view of prophecy. That means that history and prophecy work in hand to hand. But today there are other forms of prophecy out there. There's preterism that denies any future prediction. This is historical criticism. That's most scholars today are preterists. There's futurism, which is where the Protestant world has gone. That's dispensationalism. You've heard about the rapture. You've heard about the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem, all of these things. That's futurism. And then there's idealism, which basically spiritualizes all of these things into specific fulfillments in history to simply metaphors and spiritual ideas. This is very popular today, by the way. It's also popular in our church today. We need to be very careful. There is a tendency in our church today to allegorize the Bible, to take what is meant to be interpreted literally and imply it spiritually. Miller's, William Miller's principles of interpretation, which Ellen White soundly endorsed, was that every word must have its proper bearing on the subject presented in the Bible, that all scripture is necessary and may be understood by diligent application and study. Nothing revealed in the scripture can or will be hid from those who ask in faith, not wavering. I'm not going to mention all of them, but in pertain to prophecy, scripture must be its own expositor since it is, the, is a rule of itself. In other words, that's the Protestant principle, right? If you find every word of prophecy after the figures are understood is literally fulfilled, then you may know that your history is the true event. But if one word lacks a fulfillment, then you must look for another event. By the way, in apocalyptic prophecy, we're talking about Daniel and Revelation, there's another tendency in Adventism today to look for multiple fulfillments. Apocalyptic prophecy has one fulfillment. Jesus Christ was one fulfillment. That's apocalyptic prophecy. There's not 10 different interpretations for the little horn. There's not 10 different interpretations for um, the man of sin in 1 Thessalonians. Let's not spiritualize what we've been given clarity for hundreds of years by the Protestant reformers through the study of Scripture. But we are obscuring that in a massive way in our church today. And we've got preachers preaching all kinds of things out there. We're losing our focus on historicism in a major way. Historicism is the idea that basically uh, you move through time and there are no huge gaps, but the Bible moves progressively through time in a historicist view. We think of Daniel chapter 2, its elaboration in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 11. I'm not going to get into Daniel chapter 11. But Daniel chapter 11, in my view, needs to follow the progression of what is happening in the previous chapters. That's how prophecy is being fulfilled. 
That's how prophecy is being written in Daniel. We've got all kinds of ideas about Daniel 11 right now. Let's be careful that we're not reading modern news into an ancient book that was meant to give us the meaning for news today. But metaphorical interpretations are everywhere in Adventism as well. The fifth trumpet today, the literal interpretation was the Saracen invasion. Today it may represent, this is, these are quotes from scholars, I'm not going to name them, may represent the reality and spiritual consequences of secularism and evolutionary skepticism since the 19th century. How specific is that? The Ottoman invasion, literal interpretation, may represent end-time religious opposition to God and his people. That's idealism. That's simply very abstract, very general, nothing specific. 666, this is a very famous one. I'm not going to get into it. But the Protestant reformers were united in vicarious Philae Dei, representing specifically the papacy. That is not a comfortable thing to be preaching today. But before we give that up, we need to make sure we do our homework. One of the people that's done that is Edwin de Kock in his 800-page book, The Truth About 666. Be careful. The lake of fire, one scholar says, is not literal, but a metaphor for complete annihilation. The two witnesses, which Ellen White says, and, and Protestant historians and interpreters have said for years, are the Old Testament and the New Testament, is now simply the people of God. Some say the Jewish people and the Christian people. There's all kinds of ideas floating around. The time prophecies. We, 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 we're, we're tending to go into a kind of eclecticism in our church among some circles where we're not, doing, we're not pure historicists anymore, but we're mixing and melding different methods of futurism, preterism, historicism. It's called eclecticism. And I believe, and I'm saying this very carefully, but I believe the reason for that is that we are the only denomination left that still believes after 500 years of the Protestant Reformation in the historicist interpretation of prophecy. And some of our people simply want to fit in with what other scholars are saying today. We need to be careful. <laughs> Peer pressure doesn't end in high school. Okay? We need to be careful to be faithful to what God has given us through his word and through the prophets of old. These four specific time prophecies are being reinterpreted. This is the only one that kind of is left untouched in Adventism so far. So far. Now, I'm not going to go through this chart. But this is what we've been given through the prophetic word. We know not all the details and when and how and why and, well, we do have some of those answers, but we know what's going to happen. We should not be embarrassed about this. We have been given a gift in the gift of prophecy, and it is our task to share the life-saving message of the gift of prophecy to the world so that they can be saved and know what is going to happen as well. That's why we're here. That's why we've been called for such a time as this. This is the time period, in case you're wondering, in which we're living, the time period before the close of probation. We know that there will be a latter rain. Maybe it's already falling in some places. There will be a time of great trouble, a time of Jacob's trouble. All those things are still ahead of us. In the next presentation, I'll be talking about the Sabbath, and I'll be talking about marriage.
Let me tell you something. We have focused on the Sabbath and the Sabbath and the Sabbath. Praise the Lord. He's given us that. And we need to stand on the Sabbath. But there's a fifth commandment. And if we do not overcome with the marriage issue, that's the trial issue that we're at right now. How are we going to defend the Sabbath in the future? I saw an angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. The what? The everlasting gospel, the first angel's message to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and the springs of water. Direct quotation from the fourth commandment. Seventh-day Adventists have been called for such a time as this. I am convinced as never before, there is a reason why there are no historicists anymore. There's a reason why creation has gone by the wayside, the belief in creation. We have been called to uphold that doctrine at this time. There's a reason why evolution is, is, is gaining sway. There are reasons for this, folks. And it's time for us to stand on the promises and the truths of God, God's word, to share that with the world. These things have been given to us as a gift. So I go back to the slide in the fullness of time. And I want to apply it to us today. Our nation striving to unite under one government? Have you heard about Brexit? Are religions striving to come together? I'm sorry for English one language. I shouldn't. That was a little cheeky of me. But it is. I worked. It's supposed to be Spanish, I know. But uh, yeah, it's true. It's, um, I worked at a Swiss hotel, a very fancy Swiss hotel when I was a student. I thought I was hired there because I had taken German for a year and I knew German. But I went, arrived in Switzerland and I realized, of course, I didn't know Swiss German. It took me two months just to understand a few words in Swiss German. Um, I was hired because I spoke English, because the clientele of that hotel were um, oil magnets from Saudi Arabia, were the CEO and, and, and of, of Nestle Corporation. I mean, they, they were the top people in the world that were coming to Switzerland to do business. And, of course, that's where the banking is. And um, I think we, we realize that English, for better or for worse, is. Um, you know what the heavenly language is going to be. It's going to be English because Americans are too lazy to learn another language. <laughs> Air travel, the internet system, I, I, I replaced roads now, okay? I replaced roads. Air travel, the internet system, we are a, a global village today. I'm always amazed still today, even though I fly as much as I do, that I can be in less than 24 hours on the other side of the planet. It's amazing. You're, you're in a different world. You're suddenly in the Philippines and it's a different world. It's an amazing world. Christians today, this was Jews before, Christians today are losing their faith. We're living in a post-Christian Western world. There's no question about it. Paganism and secularism, we may question this as losing hold, but I believe there's a new trend, by the way, in philosophy and art to the spiritual. People are moving back to that now. They're tired. There's no answers where we've been. Degraded humanity is ready for something. Prophecy has been studied and understood. Should be by us. 
Daniel and Revelation's prophecies are about to be fulfilled. And so my question today is, as we stare out in the grand universe, this is my last slide, as we stare out in the grand universe, this is God's message to us. Seek, and I'm sorry, and you will seek me and find me when you search with me for all your heart. Young people, older people like me, are you searching for God with all your heart? You see, when we do that, our mantra will be different. Our mantra will be, it's the journey that matters because it's all about the destination. It's the journey that matters because it's all about the destination. And the destination is heaven and bringing as many people as we can to it. Let's bow our heads. Gracious Heavenly Father. I went over time again, I'm sorry. But you are gracious and good. And your prophecies of the Bible are true. You have given us your word. May we live by it. May we study it. May we not be overcome by the plurality of ideas even within our own midst, but may we go back to the sources, drink deeply from those sources, and be ready in season and out of season to share that sure word of prophecy with others. I hope this presentation today didn't cause doubts but created hope and courage to each one of us here today because you have a purpose for us and that purpose is clear. You sent your son and you are sending him again and we praise you for that. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take a sacrificial initiative for Christ. To download other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.